Well, today we're going to be um, continuing in our series called The Not-So-Cool Cats of the Bible. And today we're going to take a look at a guy named Samson. For some of you, a, maybe a familiar story if you grew up in church. Or maybe you watched the old movie a long time ago, Samson and Delilah, and you remember it. Maybe you're old like me and you remember it. But most of us know somebody who started well but finished poorly. We all know somebody who may have at one point in their life had so much going for them, so many good things happening, and yet, uh, man, they tanked. Something happened and it just took them down, or they made some choices and they were knocked out. Most of us know somebody who started well and finished poorly. Maybe they landed a great job, and it was the job of a lifetime, but something happened and they ended up losing that job or they got fired. Maybe uh, that, that couple seemed to be the perfect couple until they weren't. And it ended ugly. Maybe if somebody had an amazing scholarship and, and a full ride at school, but they got mixed up in the wrong crowd and ended up dropping out and losing all of that. Or maybe you thought this guy might be, here's a picture I've got for you, might be the next president at some point. And he was uh, pretty popular and quite possibly the guy. But a scandal cost him everything. He started fairly well, but you know the story, finished poorly many years ago. Uh, we had a friend of our family, his name is Dan, and he uh, was a tax attorney, had everything you could possibly imagine. I mean, this guy was living the American dream. He had it all. A beautiful house, a beautiful wife, 2.2 uh, kids or whatever the national average is. He had, he had great children. He lived in a, in, a, in a gated community with all sorts of security. His office was in a high-rent district in L.A. He had a, B, a convertible BMW that I might have coveted just once or twice. <laughs> Beautiful car. And it was just like one of three or four cars that he had. But um, even though he was very successful, he made some very poor choices, unwise, in fact, illegal choices, and got busted for fraud and some other things that happened, and he ended up losing everything. He lost his home, he lost his wife, he lost his job. In fact, he lost his freedom as he ended up doing about three years in prison. This is a guy I know personally who started so well but ended so poorly. And today, in this series, Not So Cool Cats of the Bible, we're going to look at a guy that started pretty well. And in the end, you might say, well, it finished okay. In fact, he became a, a national hero because of what happened. But so many ways, Samson finished poorly. Our focus today is on this guy named Samson in the book of Judges. And his story is found in Judges chapter 13 to 16. It's a long chunk of scripture. I will, will not be reading it all. Uh, I would encourage you maybe this week to read Judges 13 through 16 and get all the gory details. I'll paraphrase what's going on here, but let me just start with, we find out in Judges chapter 13 that Samson's uh, soon-to-be mom and dad, they were barren, and she couldn't have children. Now, it, that's tough to go through in any culture. Uh, it is a difficult thing to face no matter who you are. But in that culture, in the Jewish culture, it was almost considered as if you were cursed by God. And she bore that suffering that pain for a long time. An angel of the Lord shows up. Pretty stinking cool. Angel of the Lord shows up and says, I'm going to give you a son, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, and you, you can only imagine how blown away that would have been, uh, that experience would have been for her. But the angel says to her, uh, and to, uh, just, uh, to Samson's dad, there's only one condition. You're to raise this child as a Nazarite. Now, what's a Nazarite? What does that mean? Well, in Numbers chapter 6, and we won't go there, but I'll, again, I'll just paraphrase. Numbers chapter 6, it defines for us what a Nazarite vow means, what it looks like. 
And there are several things mentioned there, number six. One is that they're not to drink anything at all, uh, wine, in fact, not even unfermented grape juice. That was the first thing. No alcohol, no grape juice to ever touch this kid's lip. When he's born, that's the first thing. Second thing was, he couldn't even eat grapes and raisins. Kind of strange, but that was another part of it. No grapes, no raisins. The third part of the Nazarite vow was that he was never to have his hair cut. Ever to have a razor ever cut his head. Never to look like Joe. Ever. He's going to be long hair all of his life. Never to have his hair cut. And the fourth thing was that he could never grow up to be a mortician. Meaning that he was not even to come near a dead body. The Jews could touch dead bodies. They would become unclean for a season. A Nazarite vow meant never in his life was he to come near a dead body. So the angel of the Lord says, got a kid coming. He's going to be a son. But this is the way I want you to raise him. Now, by the way, in case you're wondering, there's nothing wrong with any of the things that I just mentioned. You're not going to go to hell for eating grapes, I promise you. Uh, and you can cut your hair. That's all right, too. But what this was is symbolic of the fact that Samson was chosen. He was special. He, he, in fact, the, the whole Nazarite vow thing was an indication that someone was set apart. Sanctified is the religious term. Set apart for something special by God. That they were to honor this vow and to live that way, not because there was something wrong with those things or wrong to cut your hair or wrong to drink wine, but that this person was to be marked as someone special by the Lord. Samson was to, to be set apart for something special by God. And again, Samson started well. How many of you would think that having a miraculous birth, pretty good, good way to start your life? Great way to be. And he lived a, this life marked by this Nazarite vow. And early on, it says that the Spirit of the Lord was on him. Judges 13, 25, the Spirit of the Lord began to take hold of him. Even as a young man, it was obvious. Something special about this kid. The Spirit of the Lord, God is on this guy. However, fast forwarding through his life, he's in his probably late teens. We find him in Judges chapter 14, infatuated with a Philistine girl. Not a proud day for his mama and daddy. Uh, Philistines were the oppressors of the Israelites at that time. They were idol-worshipping pagans who lived wicked lives. And for Samson to say, I, I want to marry a Philistine, would not make mom and dad happy. No way was that going to happen. However, we're given this little bit of insight. In Judges 14.4, it says his father and mother didn't realize that the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to disrupt the Philistines. Now, let me point out here. There's some debate about this, I suppose, but I think it's clear to me. It says the Lord was at work here. It doesn't say it was God's will for him to marry this Philistine woman. It doesn't say God thought, yeah, that was great, good move, Samson. Really proud of you, great job, buddy. It doesn't say that at all. But what it does say, and there's just this little bit of insight here, and I won't spend much time on this, is that God sees us even when we make mistakes, and he has a way of working through even our stupidity. Can I get an amen? He, he said, well, not... I, I'm, I'm going to turn this into something actually good for my people, for the Israelites. This is going to disrupt the Philistines in, in what happens. Well, he gets married. The wedding celebration doesn't go so well. Samson's Philistine wife betrays him. That's another long story. Too many details. But he gets mad, and he ends up killing 13 Philistine men. And he leaves his wife, the one he just married, to go back to mom and daddy. And he's furious about it. Well, his father-in-law marries him off to one of the third, you know, guys that was part of his wedding party. It's a mess. It's a terrible. You talk about dysfunctional. It was a mess from the get-go. But all of this leads to the Philistines um, finally end up capturing uh, Samson because they, he was given over to them by the Israelites. Blah, blah, blah. A lot of story there. A lot of details. But here's the point I want you to get. 
Samson ends up breaking free and taking what was at hand, which is the jawbone of a donkey, and uses that basically as a club and kills a thousand Philistines. Yeah. One guy defeats a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. That's a pretty cool story. Years go by, and we get to Judges 16, and we find Samson once again in a Philippine city, the Philippine city of Gaza, and he's hooking up with a Philistine prostitute. What this guy uh, apparently had possessed in power, he lacked in wisdom, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Some time later goes by, uh, some more time goes by, and then he falls in love with another Philistine woman named Delilah, and now the famous part of the story, Samson and Delilah come into play. Uh, Delilah betrays him again. He does not have good luck with women, especially not with Philistine women. And this woman betrays him for a whole lot of money. And she asks him, what's the secret? He lies to her two or three times, three times, I think. Finally, because it says she nagged him to death. I'm not going to make any comment about that. She nags him to death, and he gives in and tells her the secret is, I'm, I've got this Nazarite vow, he cut my hair, and I'm as weak as anybody. She lulls him to sleep in her lap. She cuts his hair off. He gets caught, captured, bound. They gorge out his eyes. It's an R-rated story. Gorge out his eyes and bound him, uh, chains to, a, uh, to a, a grinding wheel that normally would have been pushed by oxen. Not a, a happy ending at all. She, gets, uh, she betrays him, and Judges 16.22, though, says this, that that wasn't the end of the story. Judges 16.22, but before long, his hair began to grow back. And Samson gets the last laugh as he pushes down. He's, he's brought into this temple of Dagon, and he's brought there to be made fun of, and he says to the guy who took him in, put me between the two center pillars, and this temple had uh, massive 3,000 people are there. Samson, one more time, is empowered by the Lord, literally pushes down these massive pillars and kills himself but 3,000 Philistines in one uh, final act of victory. Great story. Sad. A lot of drama, love, violence, but the bad guys get it in the end, which is always one of the things I like about great stories. But tragically, it's a story about a man who once had the favor of God, once had everything, but he allowed his emotions. Frankly, he allowed his sex drive and his own foolishness to cost him everything, even his life in the end. And guys, I so don't want to be that guy, and I don't think you want to either. So let's talk about how to finish well. Or to put it negatively, in other words, how not to finish poorly. And I said early on, I think I've said it every week in this series, I know we're looking at some pretty tragic tales and some things that seem somewhat negative, and we're talking about what not to do. And they go, well, see, why don't you tell me what to do instead of what not to do? Well, I'm going to get there too. But uh, as I mentioned early on in this series, part of what I love about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't candy coat anything. The Bible gives us these stories, plain, raw, ugly, broken, and it, and it does so because part of it is the Bible wants us to look at the, the stupidity of other people and to not go there. I said the first week, we don't have to learn lessons the hard way. Though many of us choose to go that path, we don't have to learn lessons the hard, hard way. We can learn from the mistakes of others what not to do. And that's what I want us to take a look at today, how to not finish poor. Here's the first thing. Number one, don't let your gifts outgrow your character. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that, but don't let your gifts, your skills, your abilities outgrow your character. Samson was gifted. 
No doubt about it. It was not just a natural strength he had. It was a supernatural strength. And God had his hand on this guy's life from before he was born. But Samson was grossly deficient in his character. Had he exercised self-control or sexual restraint, he never would have ended up where he did or how he did. One commentary this week put it this way. He said, Samson yielded uh, his carnal, to his carnal appetites rather to, to the Lord and holy desires. He yielded to the desire of the flesh rather than to God. In fact, he wrote, he wrote this. When he was not saving Israel, he was being Israel who fornicated themselves time and time again. If you really want to get depressed, read the entire book of Judges. Because it's one of those stories where you see the people of God start well, end up worshiping idols, fail miserably, they get in a tough spot, in a pickle, messed up, they cry out to the Lord, the Lord's merciful and kind, he sends them somebody to save them, to rescue them, to be a deliverer, such as, as, as Samson in Judges 13 through 16, and then after a season, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's 40 years, after a season they end up drifting back to worshiping idols and to stupidity and failure again, and God sends them another deliverer, and it goes on and on and on. The cycle repeats itself again and again. But what this commentary said, which is so true, is that when Samson wasn't saving Israel, he was being Israel, fornicating himself, giving himself away, compromising again and again. And here's my point. If and when our gifts and our talents, our skills and our abilities, whatever they may be, what we do, if and when those things outpace who we are, that's a prescription for trouble every time. I believe God wants to gift us. He wants to empower us. He wants to give us things. He wants to use us in amazing ways. But there needs to be this, this sync with uh, this, this, this combination between what we have from God, the gifts, and our character. Years ago, long time ago, when we lived in Southern California, I knew a young woman who, a uh, very attractive, very gifted young woman named Angie. And uh, she had a voice like Sheryl Crow. I don't know if you like Sheryl Crow, but everybody who listened to her said, man, you sound just like Sheryl Crow. You're amazing gifted singer. She sang with clarity, with conviction, uh, with powerful words. She wrote these songs that just pierced the darkness, and she uh, loved the Lord, and I truly believe that Angie was destined for greatness. But as is often as the case in the music world, you, it's too easy to get messed up and, and drawn into bad relationships, and she started hanging out with the wrong crowd and the wrong people, and, and she ended up, uh, tragically ended up an emotional a physical and a spiritual mess. And I remember thinking, wow, what a loss for the kingdom. The Apostle Paul once wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Paul said, don't be kid kidding yourself. Don't be fooled. Bad company corrupts good character. And it breaks my heart to say it, but Angie became the poster child for this truism, for this verse. Her character didn't keep up with her amazing gifts. She made choices that ended up costing her dearly. Okay, so how do you avoid this problem of having your gifts outpace your character? Having whatever God has given you to do or, or the things that he's called you to do outpace your character? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Let me bullet point some things through with you right now. Here's the first bullet in your outline. Don't play with temptation. Flee from it and pursue God. I can't underline this exclamation point this enough. Don't play. How do you keep growing in your character and stay ahead of temptation. Don't play with it. Don't play with temptation. Flee from it and pursue God. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. 
And I like the word flee because it doesn't say, you know, just kind of casually walk away. Yeah, you know, whatever. Maybe just dabble a little bit. It's not that big a deal. No. The scripture says flee, run, get out of there. I don't know if you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis where Joseph is, is trying to be, the, the, his Potiphar, his, his master's wife is trying to seduce him. And I love what Joseph did. He bolted out of there. In fact, he ran out so quick that she grabbed his cloak and, and, and ripped it off his body. He fleed, and we need to flee. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. And it doesn't just stop there. I love this verse. It says, and pursue, go after, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And listen to this last part. Along with those who call on the Lord out of the pure heart. Paul writes to this young man, Timothy knowing the temptations that all young men face. And he said, Tim, flee those evil desires of your youth. Don't go there. And in fact, choose to pursue God, righteousness, love, faith, the things that are holy. And then this last part, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Paul says, and hang out with people who are going to encourage you to do the same, who are following Jesus with all their hearts. Run from evil unto holiness. James the brother of our Lord put it this way in James 1, 13 to 15. No one who is tested should say, God is tempting me. We can't blame God. This is because God is not tempted by any form of evil, and he does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, here's the pattern. James says, let me explain to you what happens. Everyone is tempted by his own cravings. Anybody ever been tempted by their own cravings? Come on. The rest of you are lying. Everyone. said, so everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They're lured away and enticed by them. That's the intent. Take us away from what God wants. But here's the point where we fail. Verse 15, once those cravings conceive, they give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. James says, here's the pattern. Unchecked cravings. We all have cravings. Let me just be clear about this. If you're breathing, you have cravings. If you're alive, you have unholy cravings sometimes. We all are tempted. To be tempted is not the sin. It's what do we do with it at that point. And if we allow it to simmer there, to stay there, if we play with it, if we toy with it, if we just kind of linger there, then that conceives, the, the, it, it gives birth to sin, and sin always leads to death. And if not physical death, as it did in Samson's case, then emotional, phys, uh, relational, fi financial, it leads to death at some level. Samson played with temptation rather than run from it. Don't. Do that. Don't be that guy. Here's the next bullet. What do we do to make sure our character stays in pace with our gifting? Next bullet, be alert and pray a lot for wisdom and power. Be alert. Be wise. Wise up. Get smart about this and then pray to God a lot. God, oh God, oh God, oh God. One of my favorite prayers is, oh God, oh God, oh God. I need you. It's a great prayer. Pray for wisdom. James went on to say to another part of James, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And here's the promise. God will give it to you. God will give it liberally to you. We just got to ask. Oh, God, I'm stupid. I need wisdom. I don't know what to do here. And the promise of the scriptures is you ask God, he's going to give you wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Pray for his power. God, I need the Holy Spirit in me. I need the hand of God. I need your life in me to live the life you've called me to. 1 Peter 5, 8. Peter said, be alert and of sober mind. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we're not to be freaked out or scared by this. Peter's intent, though, is to do a little bit of a whack alongside the head. Wake up! 
you got to live with this understanding. The enemy, Satan, wants to eat you up. He wants to destroy you. Be wise, be alert. Jesus in Matthew 26, 41, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this last night before the crucifixion, with his disciples, he moves on with Peter, James, and John. He says, you guys stay here and pray. And, and then he goes off to pray by himself. And he comes back and they're sleeping. And he says to them in Matthew 26, 41, stay alert. Stay alert and pray. Here it is. Be alert and pray. Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. The spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. Did Jesus understand us or what? The spirit is willing. Oh, Lord, I want to do the right thing. I want to. And I have never, well, let me check that. I, occasionally, a couple times I've met people who don't want to do the right thing and they're intentional about it. But generally speaking, people I talk to, they say, I don't know how it happened. I don't, want, I, I, don't want, I, don't, I don't I don't want to go there. I don't want to be that person. Most of us don't want to. The, the spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus says, stay alert and pray. Pray your guts out. And what's he mean there? Pray, oh God, oh God, oh God. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with wisdom. Give me the strength that only comes from you. Here's the next bullet. Look for a way out and take it. Not only do we flee, but you can flee through the, the door that God's opening for you to get out of there. Look for the way out and take it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Occasionally someone tells me, I don't, I don't know anybody's ever had to deal with this before. Oh, come on. You're that special? No, you're not. We've all dealt with this, and, and we've all had to deal with our own temptations. And there's no temptation that you face that's unique to you. But I love this next statement. Listen to this. And God is faithful. God is faithful. How? He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure it. God's on your side. He's in your corner. He wants to help you. Our part is to simply cry out, say, God, I need you. Which takes me to the next bullet. Cry out to the one who understands. Cry out to God. See, he is there. He's in your corner. He wants to help you. But he is not, he, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He is not going to go against your free will. And so there has to come a point in our lives where we say, I can't do this. God, I need you. I am desperate. I am broken. I am incapable of becoming the man or woman you want me to be without you. And so we cry out to God. And the good news is we cry out to the one who understands. Hebrews 2.18. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I don't know about you guys, but that brings great comfort to me that Jesus really does understand. He gets it. Luke chapter 4, he was tempted. You read it later this week. Faced incredible temptation directly from Satan himself. Jesus understands what it's like for you to go through temptation. And he's there for you to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He never looks at you and goes, what's wrong with you? I don't understand how that could happen. He gets us. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus not only knows what it's like to go through temptation, but he knows how to get through it without failing, and he can help you. Don't let your gifts outpace your character. Cry out to God. Get his help. Grow, and keep growing in him. Here's the second thing we can learn from Samson. Number two, and this one's important. 
Remember that present foolish actions almost always end in dreadful future consequences. Remember that present foolish actions, that choice you're going to make or have made, will almost always end in dreadful future consequences. Maybe it's a one on the scale of one to 10, maybe it's a 10, but it probably won't end very well. Now let me quickly insert this. I am very thankful and grateful for the mercies of God that I don't always get what I deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's his blessing when we don't deserve it. I think people, what's the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. You get that? Grace is his favor, his blessing. Thank you for your amazing grace, God, that you've given me your favor, and I have not earned that. Mercy is when I don't get, when you and I don't get what we do deserve, and I'm so grateful for that. But, and I have to insert this but, and it's consistent with what's seen and taught in the scriptures. Often, God does allow the consequences of our choices to teach us and to mold us. And it's not in punishment. It's not because he's ticked off. It's not because, well, you got yourself in that mess. I hope you have fun getting out of it. That's not God's heart at all. He does it, though, to teach us, to train us, to mold us. One of the ways you train a child is through what's called consequence training. And you may not have used that phrase, but most of you parents have probably used it. In fact, I can't imagine you not. You do that and you're going to be in a timeout. Guess what? That's a consequence. You choose that act, there will be a discipline. Let me give you a couple of examples, examples of, of natural uh, consequence training, though. Jack, four years old, told not to run through the house, especially through the living room, runs through the living room, knocks over a plant, makes a mess. Jack, at that point, has an opportunity to grow. Mom can say, Jack, come here. Grab the, the, the dustpan and the broom. You're going to help mommy clean this up right now. I don't want to. I want to go play. No, Jack, you did this. You made this mess. We're going to clean it up. I'm going to help you, but we're going to clean it up together. It's a consequence to his, his choice. Jill, Jack and Jill, Jill is told, don't leave your Barbies out in the living room because the dog, the pit bull, will eat Barbie. Don't leave your Barbies out. I'm telling you, honey, you've got to put your toys away. Otherwise, they're going to get eaten by Rusty. Jill leads the Barbies out. They get devoured by the dog. And the consequence training there would say would, would not be for you to run right out and buy her more do, do, Barbies. But for you to say, well, sweetheart, this is why I told you not to, to leave it out, to put your toys away. And so for a time, until Grandma buys you a new one. That's what grandparents are for. Grace. But anyhow, until, until you know, it's going to be a season, you're going to go without that. The Bible often speaks of a fool. In fact, a fool or, a fool or foolish, that word's used many, many times, and especially in the book of Proverbs. But I'm going to give you a definition. This is not in your, your, your outline. If you want to write this down, I encourage you to do so. A fool or a foolish person is one defined as someone who makes no connection between his or her actions and the consequences. Let me say it again. A fool or a foolish person, as defined by the scriptures, is someone who makes no connection between his or her choices, their actions, and the consequences, the future consequences of those choices. They don't connect the dots at all. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 92, verse 6 to 7, senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. A fool doesn't get it. I don't know what happened. Psalm 107.17 says, Some became fools through their rebellious ways, and listen, 
and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Well, we are rebellious, we become fools, that's, a, that's always going to lead us to trouble, and it says some suffered affliction because of their iniquities. To be foolish is to do something, frankly, stupid, wicked, rebellious, without stopping to think, uh, if I go that way, it might hurt, it might cost me dearly. I have a friend named Wayne Cordero who uh, said this once, and i never forget it. He said, we can choose consequences or wisdom to be our teacher. And you think about it in life, that really is what it boils down to. We can choose consequences, learn lessons the hard way, or we can choose wisdom to be our teacher. And trust me, it's always better to choose wisdom. Samson consistently chose poorly when it came to the women in his life. He made some really foolish, stupid mistakes. And in the end, it cost him big time. And again, what I want you guys to understand is the lesson in this is that we can, what we can learn from him is to remember that foolish actions can result in future consequences. Foolish actions will result in perhaps some really tragic consequences. And so the admonition here is in three words. So choose wisely. Choose wisely. I want to show you an artist rendition of where Samson ended up. And I, you know, obviously there were no cameras back then, but this is a picture. I think it's coming any second now. There it is. It's, there it is. Samson uh, bound. And what we can't get from this is that he, he literally had his eyes gouged out. He was blind, bound, and tied to a, a, a wheel that used to grind wheat. And I, I can't imagine spending my days, most of every day, that's what he did, walked in a circle, pushed a stick, grind, grinding wheat. He ended up there because he chose poorly, because of the mistakes that he made along the way. Now, before we get too hard about Samson, and let me start to wrap this up with some, let's make this personal. Before we get too hard on him and think, what an idiot, I would encourage you to do what I do, and it's acknowledge that his story is too often our story. It's my story. We are the people of God. Listen, you are a child of his. If you've given your life to Jesus, you belong to him. And you are special. You are as special to God as Samson ever was. And yet, though we've been called by grace and we are empowered and gifted by God's spirit, he's provided his Holy Spirit. The Bible says we've become temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you if you are his. Though that is all true, yet sometimes we, I am faithless. Sometimes we are self-indulgent. Sometimes we are too easily drawn away by our own foolish desires and lured away by temptation, and we end up in a mess. Now, the good news is that God will take those messes, and when we surrender to him, the moment we say, one of the things I love about Samson's story is at the end, he said his hair grew back, and, and he cried out to God, God, give me power one more time. Give me the ability one more time to defeat my enemies. And I love, again, this act of grace and mercy where God, sure enough, gives him the power to knock those pillars over and to, to finish, you know, the 3,000 Philistines in one fell swoop. They were gone. And, he, and Samson is listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the great examples of faith. And again, because I, I think at that final moment, he finally learned a lesson that I, I, I wish he would have learned earlier, much earlier in his life. But here's the application for you and for me. 
We face struggles, we face trials, we face temptations. We face struggles in this world, in our culture, as bad as anyone's ever had to face, we face them today. And God wants us to choose wisely, to choose him, to pursue him, to ask for his help. But here's the good news, when we fail, and we probably will, we can cry out, God, would you redeem this somehow? Would you somehow restore this situation? Restore me, bring something good out of this in the midst of my struggle. And the other promise we have, and I finish with this, it's Philippians 2.13. And I love this verse. Listen to it. Some of you want to jot this down, and you want to read this a lot, memorize this verse. Philippians 2.13. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That is a promise that God himself is working in you. And not only is he going to give you the power to do what he wants you to do, he'll even give you the desire. Our part's just simply to say, oh, God, I need you. Yes, I surrender my life to you. Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Father, thank you that we are not alone in this struggle called life. That we are not left to our own power, our own ability to do what we need to do and to be what you've called us to be. That you call us to holiness, you call us to righteousness, you call us to live like and to be just like you, Jesus, and yet at the same time you give us the desire and the power to do so if we just simply call on you and walk in you. And, and, and follow you every day as we abide in you every day. God, thank you for the promise that we can become what you want us to become and do what you want us to do. And yet, Lord, I also want to thank you right now for your grace and your mercy that many of us, most of us, have failed. We've made mistakes. Some of us sort of thought even in the last 30 minutes about that thing we did maybe this week or this month or this last year. And we know right now we're suffering some of the consequences of our foolish choices. And yet, God, that's not the end of the story. But the end of the story is we can come to you and say, God, forgive me. God, give me your grace. Give me your mercy. God, redeem, restore, renew. And you move, you come, and you do just that in our lives. Thank you. Thank you for that. Keep your head bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment. Maybe you're here today. You've not yet experienced that grace of God in your life firsthand, personally. You've not said yes to, to the call of God to follow his son, to follow Jesus, to become a Christ follower, a Christian, a disciple. And it begins with the choice to believe that he lives, that he loves you, to believe that he died for your sins. It begins with the choice in your heart to surrender your life to him and then to say, now God, I, I surrender my all to you and I embrace and accept your all for me. And if you're here today and you know that's what you want and need to do, I'm going to pray this simple prayer. No one's going to embarrass you. I'm not going to single you out. But this is a moment for you that's a defining moment in your life that will change everything. And if you're willing and you want, just make this prayer yours right now. Father, I have sinned. I have failed. I, I, I might not have had sex with a prostitute or married a Philistine, but God, I've, I've failed in so many ways. And I know that I need a Savior. I need you. I need your forgiveness and your grace. I need your touch. And so I surrender. I, I yield. I give up my life to you because you gave up your life for me. And I accept the grace, that free gift of God. And I am so grateful for your mercy that now I will no longer have to fear getting what I deserve. That I don't have to fear the wrath of God because I'm forgiven. That I'm cleansed by your precious gift, your sacrifice for me on the cross, Jesus. Thank you.
if that's you and that's your prayer, just in your own way, say, yes, God, that's so what I want. That's what I need. The Bible says the moment you say yes to him, you begin, you cross that line of faith from darkness into light, the Bible says you begin that life as a child of God. Lord, for those making that decision right now, maybe watching online, I pray, God, that you would show them what this means, what you're doing, what you're going to do in and through their life. And radically, Lord, and fill them with your spirit now so that they can leave her transformed by you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May you go today knowing that the love of God is greater than your most stupid mistake ever made. That he's able to redeem, restore, renew anything surrendered to him. No matter what it is, how bad it is, how much you screwed up, how bad you think you are, what you've done, the truth of the matter is God's love is greater than that. And he's greater than your darkest, deepest moment of failure. And he can redeem, restore, renew anything surrendered to him. Our part is just to keep saying, okay, God, uh, idiot, need you. And he goes, thank you. Yep. His love will never run out. And listen, never give up on you. Ever. If you begin your life today as a Christ follower, I encourage you to tell somebody. Confess with your mouth what the Lord's done in your heart. That's a very important step. Won't be too long. We'll be doing water baptisms. You'll need to get baptized in water. That's a great a public step. But on the tables, by the doors, as you walk out, this is for new believers. We've got a, a Bible, a new believer's Bible, specially made to help you get started in your walk with Jesus. Pick one of those up. If you need prayer, prayer to me be down front. There's always communion available on both sides of the room. If you want to just finish your, your time today in worship and worship in, in communion. But I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you, I want to bless you. Go in his great love. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming today.